Hello and welcome to a new episode of Pat's Chat. Today I have a really awesome guest, uh, Umar Munshi. He is the co-founder and managing director of Etis Global, uh, CEO of Global Sadaka, uh, chairman of the Islamic Fintech Alliance, uh, really an expert in fintech. So I'm really happy he's uh, with me today. Uh, thank you very much, Umar, for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Happy to be here. <laughs> Cool. So, um, of course, we will talk a lot about uh, fintech later, but as always, I like to know uh, a little bit more about the person behind the, the, the expert. So, I, I know you're a Singaporean, you're currently in Malaysia, uh, but you let me know, uh, you grew up in, in Singapore, did your studies there? Uh, how, how was the time growing up in Singapore? Yeah, I mean, uh, Singapore is great. You know, you're, you're brought up in a very uh, competitive, modern environment. So that shapes most of us to be aggressive people, uh, focused people, uh, but not too much entrepreneurship in the past, although now it's, it's becoming a hub for entrepreneurs. But when I was uh, growing up at that time, it was still not so common for young people to be doing their own business like what I did. So that was something quite different. Yeah. Understand. Uh, I read that you, you uh, went to the National University of Singapore, but then you dropped out. You did not complete your degree. What, what was the reason for that? Yeah, so I mean, to be frank, I'm, I'm not the kind of uh, academic kind of guy who's, who can focus and study well. <laughs> so I sort of scraped through to get into all the, the good institutions. And uh, in fact, I did not get into business school at first. But while I was in a national service, you know, all meals in Singapore have to go through two and a half years, now two years of national service in the military or in the police force. So while I was there, I started exploring business. And so I decided, why not go to business school? But my grades were not good enough. So I hustled myself in. I went for interviews. I pushed. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I went uh, and I convinced uh, the school to let me in. So I, I went in. Uh, unfortunately, it, it did not meet uh, my own expectations in terms of um, how fast I can learn what I want to learn because you know in the foundation years you learn a lot of different things and I felt that a lot of those things were not uh, so relevant to me as an entrepreneur although today I, I look back and I realize a lot of those things were in fact quite important but yeah at that time I was young and impatient and so um, I, I lasted one year uh, at the end of one year I, I convinced um, the school the university to give me uh, leave of absence so that I can pursue my business interests and then uh, I was supposed to come back but I never did yeah <laughs> more fancy to uh, start your businesses already than uh, studying basically yeah of course much more exciting yeah <laughs> yeah I, I agree with that well but what would you say like looking back at that was that a good decision is that something like you could recommend is it better like to just like start your first ventures move into entrepreneurship or or really keep like uh hard working in the university studying first yeah i i think there's no advice that's suitable for everyone in the same way so it's more about the individual if you are inclined to studying and you feel it adds value to you, then of course, please go ahead and, and complete it. But if you are someone like me who is forced to go down that path, you know, sort of forced to go down that path by societal pressure and so on, expectations, then at this moment, especially today, it's better 
<laughs> just to go your own way. That, that would be my advice. Yeah. Okay, nice, great, great advice. Um, so you, uh, well, you went directly into entrepreneurship. I uh, read somewhere or I listened in another podcast that you open a restaurant first. That, that was your first venture. Yes, yes, that was actually my probably fourth, fourth venture. But yeah, oh, one already. of the more significant <laughs> ones. Yeah, okay. <laughs> one of the more significant ones. I think I was 20, 21 years old when I did that. Uh, I was one year. Yeah, that was that was the business that actually uh, I, I started while I was in university, and then uh, uh, when I went for my leave of absence, there was one of the businesses that was focused on. Yep. So restaurants, I think it's it's very tough if you're not very familiar with it. I, I thought I could learn on the go, uh, and I did learn a lot, but not enough because restaurants are very very tough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I I think so too, and. Uh, well, basically, right now, I think uh, restaurants even had a tougher time, right, to to survive this uh, lockdown period. Um, yeah. I mean, people need to eat, so the, the, it will always be there, but in a different form, probably. Yeah, true, true. I mean, uh, some some of the restaurants were obviously quite fast in like uh, uh, changing to take out or delivery, and um, so they can for sure survive. Yep. Also, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Club kitchens uh, and all that. Correct, correct. So I think uh, restaurants are uh, some good examples also of uh, digital transformation. Well, they had to do something. They were first to do it. Some did quite well. Others, well, probably not so well. Um, but you eventually moved into uh, the fintech topic. Um, so how, how did that happen? What, what was the reason for you to like change from a restaurant to a technology fintech? Sure. Well, the restaurant was just a short two years uh, and throughout before that and, and even after that, I was actually focused on a nanotech premium healthcare product from Japan, which I distributed in Singapore. And then uh, I moved to Indonesia when I was 21 um, and got the distributorship for the country. And when I went there, I, I knew I didn't know anyone. I just decided, let's, let's try you know, a bigger, more exciting market. And uh, in the end, I lived there for about six years. And, and uh, that was actually, I would say, all preparation for me eventually moving into fintech. Right? So there were a few steps that led me to fintech, which was um, the business in Indonesia grew very fast. Um, you know, we had branches in, in five, six different cities at, some, at one point in time. And, uh, and I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. You know, I started I start with nothing and I, I built it up. So that was very good experience, very good network, very good relationships. And that's where I found, I met my co-founder who's my co-founder today he joined me as an uh, as a sales agent initially and within a year or so he became my partner um, okay. what happened was uh, the business actually collapsed quite badly uh, after building it up for six years and uh, it was sort of an internal sabotage from my own supplier right so there was a very very painful process and uh, taught me a lot of lessons main lesson was don't just trust people although you've been working with them for so long uh, where this guy essentially, you know, engineered his exit by collecting all the cash we had for a new batch of stock, and then he disappeared. Oh, right? so oh, that's so bad, when yeah. that when that happened, you know, we, we we had no contingency plans, we had no side businesses, no side income. Everything we had was in that one business. Wow! And all okay. the money we had, you know, had been also. given to him. Even money that wasn't ours, right? From okay, okay, investors and from from loans. Yeah. Wow. So when, when that happened, uh, and before that, everybody was telling me, you know, in business, there's all these ups and downs. But at that 
time I never really you know I, I didn't really understand what they meant you know I thought just keep building it up bigger and bigger and bigger uh, but yeah it, it's normal in business to have ups and downs and that that um, so-called downfall or crash was actually the trigger for me to change my worldview my life view and my life focus mm-hmm. so what happened was I went back to, Sing- to Singapore to pick up the pieces mm-hmm. and, uh, mm-hmm. and then I realized the banks who used to be my friends, the financial institutions, were now my enemies <laughs> because they, <laughs> because uh, of the debts, they uh, previously, you know, or, yeah, because of the debts, uh, yeah. I had a sports car that was repossessed and stuff like that. Okay. So I was in debt and uh, quite heavy debt at the age of 26, 20, 27. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, I'm not a rich guy, you know, I didn't come from a rich family, family are all educators. You know? So uh, what, what I realized was that there's something wrong with the financial system. Yeah. And, uh, and that's where I came across or was introduced to Islamic finance. So my journey in fintech started with Islamic finance. Um, why Islamic finance? And later I'm sure you'll ask me more about this. But mm-hmm. essentially the, the approach or the concept, the theory of Islamic finance is based on justice universal justice for humanity, right? Not only for Muslims. Okay. And, and this is something that, that existed from thousands of years ago, right? And it can be implemented in any context, right? So uh, when I started to find Islamic finance and one of the major um, uh, laws or, or prohibitions of Islamic finance is interest, right? Interest is seen to be something that's punishing or punitive or unfair because one side will always benefit at the expense of the other side, of the borrower. And that's what I felt. I had, I had to pay back the banks for, for my car. Um, I paid $1,000 a month and $700 was interest. Right? So, <laughs> so when am I ever going to get out of this, uh, of this trap? Yeah? So that. fortunately, mm-hmm. family friends came forward and helped me to clear the debt. And then I paid them back without interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I started building up two businesses in Singapore. One was an education business, which was very good cash flow. Uh, but it reached a plateau very fast. You know, it gave me good money, but it was difficult to scale up very, very large. So that helped me clear my debts. And I started a side business in Islamic finance, um, just trying to develop the demand in Singapore by providing free lessons, free courses, talks, and seminars, and so on. And that is where the community started to grow around me. In Islamic a community that was interested in Islamic finance and Islamic investment. Mm-hmm. And so in 2014, uh, we set up a private investment club. Uh, to be honest, we wanted to set up a crowdfunding platform because I found the concept and I was like, oh, this is brilliant. This is actually what we're looking for. Yeah. But there were no regulations and nobody understood oh, okay. what crowdfunding was mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. called it a private investment club. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And uh, we kept it small within a group. Uh, and that's how it started. Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I think we could uh, dig quite <laughs> deep into this journey. Uh, so many uh, companies that you founded also. Uh, but, but I think uh, it's a great story also that you just shared, like how you really moved into that and how you moved into fintech. And uh, when we talk about fintech, I think because you're really a, an expert in that, you're sharing really a lot of uh, uh, valuable information on it. Uh, can you give like a summary of what, what you 
consider what is your definition of fintech because mostly when we when we talk and i hear people talking it's like oh fintech is about the uh, e-wallet you know that that's it and uh, maybe someone will like throw uh cryptocurrency or bitcoin in the discussion you know but of course we know it's uh, uh, a lot more than that but uh, can you please like uh, summarize for for us what 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 is really sure. all behind fintech please sure i mean there are many different definitions that you can find out there but the way i view it is there are probably three three angles of looking at it and these angles or this this um categories of fintech also overlap right because the line there are no clear lines between them but it helps you to think about it this way uh, from one one aspect is enhancing uh improving existing financial services right for example banks having more better mobile banking and things like that right so you know adding on qr code payments and all these things yeah so existing financial services that are enhanced with technology right that's one time mm-hmm. another time which is what we do like crowdfunding is new business models that are enabled through technology or by technology right because of the for example e-commerce type technology which is not very advanced technology but it is very disruptive technology people today are buying stuff online you don't go to retail anymore similarly in the past when you want to finance a project or you want to even give to charity it's all in the real world right now it's gone online through crowdfunding and so those are new business models enabled by technology and the third type of of uh, or third, third maybe category uh, or angle of fintech is new technologies that are being developed that can disrupt um uh, financial services or that can provide new financial services and in this case we look at uh, all the emerging technologies uh, cryptocurrency uh, blockchain um, ai uh, apis you know all, all these different things right so mm-hmm. these are all new technologies that eventually will be implemented either in existing financial services or business models or mm-hmm. new uh, services and business models like crowdfunding yeah okay okay interesting yeah. uh so you gave some some examples or use cases for for that already which is uh, which is really awesome uh, easier to to understand um so so when we look at this um then for me as a, a non muslim i of course have the question uh why islamic uh fintech okay you you mentioned before uh, islamic finance which uh, i certainly understand certain aspects uh but what what uh, differentiates uh, basically the islamic fintech from the non islamic one or why is it needed sure. yeah sure so so there's two angles i'll approach this separately one is for muslims and specifically practicing muslims and the other one is for everybody else for humanity all right so uh, very quickly for muslims um we have our own set of laws and our own set of uh guidance on how we're supposed to live our lives right and every religion every major religion has that even people without religion has a certain set of philosophy or approach to life yeah so for practicing muslims what we are taught is uh is written uh, is is uh, recorded in the quran which is our holy book and also in sunnah which is the practices of the prophet right who we who we uh who we accept as a messenger that brings this message to us for humanity so for practicing muslims we have to follow that yeah and uh, certain things are prohibited certain things are not allowed maybe one way of looking at it is like halal food right 
So halal food is for everyone. And for Muslims, we only can eat halal food. We cannot eat non-halal food. Yeah. So, um, and today there are a lot of non-Muslims who look for halal food because halal food includes certain things like not being cruel to animals, uh, when, you know, being uh, clean, you know, and all these different things that are also universal, right? So for practicing Muslims, we need an alternative because we cannot engage with certain types of finance that go against our principles, right? So that's for Muslims. So for the natural market, I would say, is practicing Muslims, yeah? Now, for humanity or for everybody else, it is about the values or the principles of Islamic finance. If they resonate with you, then you know, then it will be something suitable for you to participate in. And in Malaysia, it's a very good example. Um, the Islamic banking infrastructure here is one of the most developed in the world. And not many people know that, although it's a Muslim-majority country, but for uh, Islamic banks here, more than half of the deposit of the deposits are from non-Muslims. Oh, Why? Okay. Because they like yeah. the features. Yeah, they, mm-hmm. they like the characteristics and features mm-hmm. of the product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So it is about the product itself. It's not about faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for Muslims, it's about faith. For non-Muslims, it's about the product. Like what value does, does Islamic finance add? Mm. Now, when it comes to Islamic fintech, we have an opportunity to implement Islamic finance outside of the banking system or outside of the existing financial system where the number one driver is profit motive or shareholder interest, right? Stakeholder interest. Mm -hmm. For fintech, especially new models like crowdfunding, it is about implementing what people want, right? What Mm -hmm. the crowd wants. Mm -hmm. And so uh, our approach specifically and what I feel should be the focus of Islamic fintech is a combination of impact investment and social finance. Because these two in the modern world today are very separated. Right? Money to make money is on one side, money to help people is, is on the other side. But if these two come together, then there can be a lot of benefit for everyone. You know? And uh, it helps those on top who want to make money and it helps by, by helping those below who need uh, assistance. Yeah? Okay. Uh, and so what, what my point here is that Islamic fintech is a, a, a form for non-Muslims. You can look at it as a form of ethical finance. Right, mm-hmm. and today you have the SRI finance, ESG, uh, impact investments, green bonds. You have all these different concepts. Islamic finance is one concept. Mm-hmm. The difference is Islamic finance regulations or rules are based on some religious principles, and it doesn't change. The basics don't change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whereas other forms of ethics may change over time, depending on who the stakeholders yeah, are, yeah, you know, yeah. what's the norms of society and things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I'm part of an organization called the RFI, Responsible Finance Institute, and uh, they do a lot of good work in bridging Islamic finance and responsible finance, and you know making it uh, coalesce and work together. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's very interesting. Thank, thanks so much for this uh, explanation. Um, so you're saying it's like the Islamic financing is uh, more ethical, um, and and you also mentioned like certain norms um, of the. Uh, non-Islamic financing doesn't comply with with uh, the Islamic belief, right? Can can you give me like w- one or two examples of of this? Like what what aspects would would not be in compliance? Sure, I mean uh, there there are a few basic principles, uh, and it all revolves around justice and inclusivity. Yeah, 
So uh, one, one that I already mentioned earlier is the prohibition against charging of interest. This is the principle of making money from money. Right? Those mm-hmm. who have money in the modern world make money from it right? by lending it to others. You don't care about the business. I'm lending you money, money because you're credit worthy. I don't care what happens to your business. You have to pay me back with the interest. Right? That is a loan. Now, in Islamic finance, that is not allowed. Because when you have money, it is viewed as a form of trust. Right? You are you know, blessed with more than mm-hmm. other people. And so it's, it's a trust on you to use it ethically. And so if you want to invest instead of lend, then your capital is tied, is tied to the success of the business or the outcome of the business or the transaction. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So this becomes more participatory. Right? So for example, a startup, uh, for example, convertible notes, right? You, you lend money into a startup and if it doesn't do well, you get your money back with some coupon rate or some interest. Right? In Islamic finance, you cannot do that. Right? You have to, if you want to lend money, it has to be tied to the outcome of the business or the profits made by the business or transactions done by the business. Okay, so that, that's one example. Okay. Yeah. okay. Uh, second example I can share mm-hmm. is about uh, clarity and transparency. Right. So in an Islamic finance contract, you cannot have uh, ambiguity, which which uh, you know may result in conflict or misunderstanding. So you must be very clear what are the terms, what are the rights and, and responsibilities of either side. And so these are a few of the two of the examples that okay. maybe I can share. Understand it. Okay. Great. Thanks. Thanks a lot for for sharing that. And uh, of course, it brings us directly to uh, your companies. Uh, that you founded because they are um, well having the vision or the mission statement exactly these these aspects right about uh, uh, <laughs> you take care of your daughter first. No, no, I'm fine. You got a daughter, right? Yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Just turned two. <laughs> Just turned two. Yeah. Okay. 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 No problem. Um, where were we? Uh, yeah. With your companies, uh, it is global, and then also another one is called Global Sadaka, uh, if I pronounce that correctly. Yeah. Um, which one shall we start? Maybe it is we start first, right? Because that's your uh, primary sure. company. Uh, so the company is focusing yep. on um, uh, crowdsourcing. You, uh, you mentioned that before. And uh, basically, you yep. found with that, or you crowdsource with that, um, houses um, or property in uh, in Indonesia. Maybe you can uh, explain yes. more clearly or, uh, in more detail sure. what what sure. is exactly the uh, the reason for that. So, so ethics is. Uh, I mean, the word ethics is a combination of uh, ethical and Islamic put together, mm-hmm. right? So, for Muslims okay. we, sense, who, yeah. who are focused on faith. <laughs> it's Islamic. For for those who are not looking at faith, who are looking at logic and principles, then it's ethics, right? Okay. So ethical and Islamic. Now, what ethics does, or, or, or let's take a step back, uh, we do crowd investment. Crowd investment is where projects or, or businesses uh, are put on a platform or featured on a platform for the public to invest in, right? So as a platform, we don't manage your money. We help to flow your money to the project. Yes. So you're investing directly in the project in between the legal work, the legal structures and, and so on is managed by us. All right? So that's our role as a platform to facilitate. Just like how when you do e-commerce, when you go to Lazada, Lazada does not own all the businesses. They just match you to those businesses. Right? So we match you to the projects or to the businesses 
that you want to deploy your investment capital in. Okay, mm -hmm. so okay. Th that's the general concept. And our specific focus is on emerging markets and impact investment, right? So right now we are approved by the Financial Services Authority in Indonesia, and we also have an approval from the Securities Commission in Malaysia. Right? In Malaysia, we have not yet launched our platform. We should be launching in quarter three this this year in a, okay. in a few months' okay. time. Cool. Yeah. Uh, it will be the first Islamic equity crowdfunding platform in Malaysia. And for Indonesia, we just got the license in November last year, but mm. we've actually been operating there for you know, more than five years yeah. uh, before licenses were available wow. while okay. processing licenses. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> right? well, you you handled it early yeah. in the... Yeah. Sorry, sorry, interrupted there. So you handled it out of uh, Singapore, right? Because I see the investment seems to be all in Correct. Singapore yes. dollars, yeah. But uh, now you can move directly to uh, Indonesia yep. itself. Yeah. Okay. Well, I saw that uh, yes. you you yes. in this way you helped helped basically to finance more than what eight thousand uh, houses or properties. Yes, we provide bridging funds to developers. So it's typically about five percent to ten percent of the project uh, capital required. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the money comes from the developer himself, or from sales, or from banks. Mm -hmm. uh, we just provide the bridging in between, uh, so that they can build more houses faster. Yeah, so we just plug into a, an ecosystem, and that's what, as a platform, we try and do. Right now, we're moving, we're looking at things like microfinance, uh, agriculture, uh, to to expand, you know, the variety of investment opportunities that we have on the platform. Yeah, but but housing, social housing is something that we've done for a long time and I think it's an opportunity that will continue to be there for at least another five, ten years. Mm -hmm. Okay, wow, that's awesome. Uh, that's a, a, a great thing. I'll put uh, up the link later and uh, as I mentioned before, um, again, it's also open for uh, non-Muslims, right? So everyone can basically invest or uh, help to crowdsource yeah, yeah, yeah. or crowdfund these uh, projects. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so let's move on to. Uh, I mean, there's two angles. One is. Yeah. Yeah. Please go on. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Just let me finish up. So there's sure. two angles. One is the returns, and the other one is the impact. Right. Mm -hmm. So from a returns perspective, we give returns uh, typically above ten percent on an annualized calculation. Sometimes eight or nine percent if the project has a delay. Right. Because the typically when you invest, the profit is uh, estimated and more or less known already. But the time frame can change. Right? The, the property development can experience delays or can experience some uh, you know, extension of time. So, for example, you invest in a project that's supposed to take 12 months with 15% returns. Yeah, but somewhere in between, there's a three month delay. So it becomes 15%, uh, 15 months, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, in that case, annualized, it becomes 12%. Yeah? Right, so, yeah. so, the returns don't change by time, the returns are tied to the project completion. Mm, okay. Right? Uh, yeah, so yeah. that is one thing. Um, then the the second th second part is uh, the second part is about uh, the impact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you when you do this investment, uh, you directly provide houses for people, right? Mm -hmm. And these are low income people who, and there's a huge shortage of, of about 13 million houses. Yeah. So wow. uh, this is a That's government lovely. program which supports mm -hmm. more than a million houses being built every year. And so we plug into that program to help more houses get developed. And so your investment not only makes for you money, but it also helps people get a home. 
and getting a home can help you know an, an entire communities to break out of poverty in the long run. Wow. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Very very nice. Uh, very great uh, project. I have to say. Um, yeah, I think we, we can leave uh, Etis Global like that for the moment uh, sure, and move sure. over to uh, Sadaka, Global Sadaka is called. I had to look it up, of course. Uh, I understand now that it's, uh, the term means uh, voluntary charity. Um, maybe yep. you can let me know what the platform uh, really does. Sure. So similarly, we have you know, general universal uh, campaigns for everyone, you know, general charity. You can see on our platform, you know, we help uh, refugees, we help people affected by the COVID, we help frontliners, we, we uh, you know, facilitate uh, donations to people who need food to sustain and survive and things like that, right? So general charity is a big part of it. Now, at the same time, a very unique or specific focus we have is on Islamic social finance. Now, Islamic social finance, there are two main unique types that I can share. Um, one is called zakat, which is the compulsory um, fee or tax. It's like a tax. It's a compulsory mm -hmm. tax on wealth. Mm -hmm. The difference between this and normal income taxes is income taxes is, is tax on income, mm -hmm. whereas this is tax on wealth, right? Right. So, <laughs> so for zakat, <laughs> for zakat is 2.5% uh, of your wealth if you uh, meet a certain threshold. Of course, if you're below that threshold, then you're a recipient of zakat. If you're above the threshold, you're a giver or contributor of zakat. Okay. It's 2.5% of your assets. So, uh, liquid assets, illiquid assets, you know, all types of assets. So, for Muslims, it becomes even more important for them to invest. If not, the assets will go down by 2.5% every year, right? So, you need to find returns more than 2.5%, you know, so that you can, you can have an increase in your wealth. Yeah. So, how much is zakat globally? Nobody knows for sure because it's a lot of it's informal, you know, through organizations mm -hmm. and religious leaders and stuff like that. But one estimate by the Islamic Development Bank, which is like the World Bank, um, puts it at, at least 500 billion a year. Wow. Okay. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 500 billion up to a trillion a year, every year. Mm. Something that goes out because Muslims have to give it, right? Mm. So mm -hmm. uh, a lot of this is really going to good use, but you know, uh, based on the numbers, a lot of it is not. Yeah? So that's what we try to do. We try to provide more transparency and efficiency in zakat distribution. Um, we work with large foundations, uh, Islamic banks and other corporates, and of course, the public. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So although uh, if you see on the front of the platform, it's a crowdfunding platform, but most of our efforts and activities are actually B2B. Yeah, working with corporates, Islamic banks, and foundations to channel their zakat. Now, another aspect of Islamic social finance is called wakaf. Wakaf is essentially endowments or trust. Right? If you were to do a bit of digging up in history, uh, uh, British uh, trust law, which is the foundation of today's trust and uh, endowment landscape, uh, was actually derived or inspired by the concept of wakaf. Yeah, the Wakaf started you know, many, many, many years ago, thousands of years ago. And then uh, the, the Western world saw the concept of creating a charitable institution. And then they created the endowment or trust law in the UK. And from there, it spread globally. So Wakaf is essentially trust. And in, in the Muslim world, as well as in the non-Muslim world, there's a lot of land assets 
that are actually wakaf, meaning wealthy people gave away land before they died to the community. Right? But a lot okay. of them are not properly developed because they are managed by religious leaders who are not business people, right? who are not project managers. Yeah? So today, uh, there is a big push towards developing this wakaf. And uh, one good example is Singapore. And we are lucky that we have two advisors who are both uh, lead, uh, leading the Singapore Wakaf development. So about 15, 20 years ago, uh, 90% of Wakaf in Singapore was developed. Right? All the Wakaf land in Singapore was developed and made productive. And today it's worth about um, 700 million Singapore dollars, the, the Wakaf in Singapore, wow. and creating income for, you know, to give, to distribute to poor people. Mm. Yeah. So that's another focus that, that we are starting to have on global spectrum. Oh, okay, okay, awesome. <laughs> uh, really like that. I uh, agree with you. I have more stuff to dig up. Uh, the terms that you just used, uh, like sakat, I think. Um, but uh, I really appreciate you you sharing your knowledge, uh, your wisdom, and I see that uh, your company is really uh, running for a good cause. I really can encourage people to to support that. Uh, look into that what you're doing and uh, yeah thank you so much uh, Umar for um, for sharing uh, your experience also your stories your up and downs that you had uh, being an entrepreneur yeah, my pleasure. Uh, and uh, of course I wish you all the best uh, good luck and uh, lots of success with uh, your companies all right thank you Pat Okay, thank you so much and uh, thank you for uh, watching this episode also. I hope it was uh, as fruitful for you as it was for me. Uh, stay tuned and uh, see you next week for another episode of Pat's Chat. Thank you very much. This episode was brought to you by Adrian Koo FMC. He is a remote multidisciplinary creative designer, entrepreneur with niche designs in 3D, packet designs, event designs and branding. Aaron Koo, FMC, loves to connect via LinkedIn. Just search for his name.